Mark chapter 13, let's begin in verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not... Uh, you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where he ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fail, or fall rather, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father." Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country 
who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Let's pray together. Lord, we want these verses, this chapter, to to be used by you in our lives to make us more like Jesus, Lord. Thank you that you want to make us more like Christ and further conform us in the image of his, um, into his image. So we yield our hearts now, Lord. We want, to, we want to watch. We want to pay attention. We want to perceive the things you want us to perceive. We pray, Lord, you would make this body very fruitful. Thank you for the fruit you've already produced. We pray that it would increase and it would exponentially multiply for your glory. So we pray, Lord, that the disciples would be further made this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're getting very close to the end of Jesus' public ministry. We saw him confront the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the temple courts. And they challenged him, and they were trying to trip him up. They were trying to catch him in his words. And then they asked him these questions, and then he asked them questions, and he exposed them for what they were. They weren't weren't the leaders that God had called them to be. They were called to lead the people in receiving the Messiah, but instead they were plotting his death, and he spoke a parable against them, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. They didn't dare answer or ask any more questions after that. And then he sat down and saw this widow as we looked at last week, give two mites, which was the equivalent of $2 in our currency. Uh, And she gave everything that she had. She worshiped with everything that she had. And he noticed that. He saw that. And he said she gave more than all those that gave so much more than her because they gave out of their abundance versus giving sacrificially and from the heart. And it's from a heart of worship. I know that blessed him so much to see that faith, that dependence, that belief in the face of all the unbelief and all the wicked unbelief that these religious leaders were showing him knowing that they, he, they were plotting his death at that time. And, and I know that blessed him. And any time we demonstrate dependence upon him and, and trust in him and worship, it blesses him. Don't forget that every way that we can worship him blesses him every single time that we do it. He loves it. And we, sometimes you think, well, what could, you know, you, you think about buying gifts for somebody or giving somebody something, and they have everything. Well, what do you give God? <laughs> well, he has everything. He owns everything. But he set it up for us to be able to worship him with our hearts. And he hasn't made us robots to where we have to do those things. He's given us a will. He's given us choice to do it. And that, that's the reason why it's meaningful to him and to us. So it's beautiful. But now he gets into this whole chapter here in chapter 13 where they come and they make a comment to him. And the disciples ask him a question. Look with me in verse 1. They say, it says, Then as he went out of the temple, so he was in the temple area before, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So they're impressed with the buildings the amount of buildings, the scope of the buildings, the size of the buildings. And then notice it says that what manner of stones, that white marble. You know, they had covered part of the temple, that part that faced 
the east with gold, uh, at least in, in Solomon's time. Um, and then later, as we'll talk about in a moment, um, it was further uh, decorated and all of that under Herod. And so they looked at this, this white marble and this, the gold ornaments and all these things. And when the sun came up, it was blinding. And they just couldn't believe that they got to worship at this temple. I mean, just so fixated on it, so impressed with it. And they're showing him, and it cracks me up just because, you know, I'm just weird. But, you know, just like he hadn't noticed those things before or he hadn't known the significance. He, hadn't, he, he missed that. He must have missed how, what the stones were made of and, and how beautiful and all the buildings. He is a rabbi, you know. Um, he's fairly familiar, but just, I mean, quite apart from being God in human flesh, obviously. But he's there, and so they're impressed with it. And they say, teachers, see what manner. Look with your eyes. Look and see what these stones are made of. Look and see what buildings are here. There, are, there were two Jewish temples. There has been two Jewish temples uh, in the history of Israel. And it all began, they had a meeting place with the Lord, the tabernacle, all through the wilderness and so forth. God gave very specific instructions to Moses on how to construct that, the dimensions, what was supposed to go in it. It was all a copy of heaven. If you want to know what, the, what heaven looks like, at least in the throne room and all of that, it looks much like how it was set up and the dimensions in the, in the tabernacle there. But King David desired to build God a house. And he said, here I am in this You've been so good to me, God. I'm, I'm in this amazing house, and here you are in, in a tent. It just doesn't seem right. It's not fitting and all of that. And he had it in his heart, and he expressed to God that he wanted to build a temple. And God said, yes, I know that's in your heart, but I'm going to build you a house. Again, you can't outgive God. He's just going to bless and bless and bless. As he, he can't help himself. He just is, he's all loving. And so he said, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to bless you with a Someone, one of your descendants is going to be rule on your throne forever and ever and ever. And David breaks out in this worship and this song and all of that. And, and so, but he said, no, you can't build it, David. You're a man of war. You can't build it. And so David received that and knew that he was limited in terms of what he could do. But he did everything but build that puppy. <laughs> he, he prepared it and prepared and prepared and did everything but build it. And then Solomon, his son, actually built the temple. That's the first temple called Solomon's Temple. You often hear that. And then when Solomon died, there was a division in, in, the, um, in Israel. There was the northern tribe and the southern tribes. So there were 12 tribes there. And so the, the 10 were divided. They basically uh, disagreed over who would take over. Uh, the ten tribes of Israel and so forth. So, and so they went under um, their own leader and all of that. Um, Solomon's kind of military commander and all of that. And so they, he built this incredible temple. They worshipped. It was beautiful. You can read all about it in the Old Testament. But then between 602 and 586, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, old, old Nebi as I like to refer to him, I'm um, sure he went by Nebi. I know that was a nickname. I'm positive of it. Uh, just don't quote me. But um, Nebuchadnezzar had three different campaigns to conquer uh, the southern kingdoms there of Judah. And, and so the northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians like 130-something years earlier. And so in 586, he conquered, um, destroyed the temple and all of that, and then took them away, the, 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 the kingdom of Judah, to, to Babylon, and they were there for 70 
years, long years there. And so that was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin carried away to Babylon for 70 years. Now, after they were finished receiving their discipline from the Lord, from their idolatry, and from not resting the land, uh, after 70 years, God allowed them to uh, start making their return back to, to Israel. And it started, you can read about it in Ezra and, and all of that, and you see Zerubbabel go, be allowed to be the governor of Judah, and he went back to Judah, and he helped rebuild, and it took, it took many years, like 20 years, to rebuild uh, the temple, the second temple. So sometimes we refer to it as the second temple as the temple of Zerubbabel, but more often than that, we, we call it Herod's temple. And so sometimes there's confusion because we think, well, Zerubbabel is the second temple, Herod's temple is number three. No, what he did was he took that whole area, Herod the Great, and he, in 20 B.C., that's when he started it, and he took the whole temple complex, he expanded it, made it wider and greater, he redid everything. He was a, uh, it's, all he wanted to do is do a um, kind of a building campaign legacy project, and he built all kinds of things, and it took around 50 years to complete the work, and actually they were still fine-tuning it when it was destroyed um, in A.D. 70. Now, the third temple has yet to be built. Now, the Temple Institute in Israel uh, is ran by a bunch of um, Jews that are looking forward to the third temple, and they have prepared all the implements or many of the implements and the, the, uh, all the things needed for it. And you can uh, actually follow them on Facebook, and they post things, and they're looking forward to that third temple. Now, we know from Scripture that they're going to receive the Antichrist as the Messiah. They, Jesus said at one point, he said, you do not receive me. I come in my Father's name, you don't receive me. But there will come one who comes in his own name, and you will receive him. And when you go to Israel today and you ask them, how will you know when Messiah comes? And they say, he, he will bring peace. To a person, they will say, he will bring peace. Peace, peace, peace. And he will be a political mastermind that will bring peace. He will sign a seven-year peace contract with Israel. And, and that will cause this false Peace. And so that third temple is coming. Now look at me at Jesus' answer to what they said in, in uh, verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus said this, and then 38 years later, in A.D. 70, the general Titus responded to them, them uprising in A.D. 66 when they just rejected Rome as occupiers anymore and they were going to go to war. We don't care what it costs us. We're going to rebel. They had, had a pattern of rebelling all this time, but this was the most organized and kind of sophisticated rebellion yet in A.D. 66, and it all culminated with Titus, this general, this Roman general, coming in and destroying the temple and the city and it fulfilled the Lord Jesus' prophecy. It was fulfilled. They threw the stones down. When you go there today, you can still see the stones there. They're still there from when they threw them down. There's, no one's going to move them. What's the purpose of moving them? So they're, they're there. And so the only thing that's left from, the, from that Herod's temple is the retaining wall, part of the, one of the retaining walls that went around the temple complex. It's called the Western Wall or commonly known as the Wailing Wall. And so it's the holiest site for the Jews right now because the only structure, part of a structure, that's left from that time. Even though it wasn't the temple itself, it was part of that overall uh, area there. And they go and they, they pray, and it's segregated by sexes, and they'll go there and they'll tuck little prayers and 
piece of paper and put them in the cracks and all of that. You have to wash your hands, do the ritual hand washing before you. I wasn't very good at that. Um, before before uh, you, you go and pray and all of that. And I, I think I told you that I was hit up by a, uh, a guy wanting to, you know, money for his wedding. I'm like, this is a holy place. What are you doing? You know, and he got all ashamed and walked away and everything. But um, it wasn't cool. I didn't appreciate that um, at the Wailing Wall. So now they want to know what's going on because he says this and he says, you know, not one stone. I mean, you have to realize why this would happen. Why would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Because the whole temple and all the sacrifices and all those things because of Jesus were not needed anymore. When you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see that the new covenant is a better covenant. And the old covenant passed away. His word didn't pass away. The law hasn't passed away. There's a purpose for it. But the old covenant is passed away in the sense that now there's a better covenant, a new covenant in his blood. Jesus talked about that related to uh, when we receive communion. And so there was a reason. There was a reaping for their rejection of him. And also there was, there's not a reason for sacrifices anymore because he's our great high priest. And there was a sacrifice once and for all on that cross. There was the perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. He was sinless. And that paid for everything. That's why he said it is finished. And so that was the supreme sacrifice. So there's no other need for any sin sacrifices. You know, in the millennium, the thousand-year millennium, after the seven-year tribulation, we're told there will be sacrifices. But they won't be sacrifices for sin because even then, of course, Jesus' sacrifice will be applicable and people could, um, they can receive that and, and it, it's, it works. I mean, it, it's functional. But there will be sacrifices, and many think it's the purpose of seeing the seriousness of sin and what Jesus went through and all of those things pointing to like a memorial, kind of like communion is, but having animal sacrifices going on. But they won't be for redemption and all those things. So God allowed this, but you have to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. They were so proud of this thing. It had been decades in the works, since 20 B.C., it had been in the works, this, this brand new expansion of the temple and all of that. And here he says, not one stone's going to be left on another. It, for us, it's, we're looking back at it from history, but they're, they're thinking, how could that be possible? How could God allow that? Why would he allow that? This is so, this is, these walls were so big, these foundation stones, some of, some of which were 40 tons. They still don't know how they moved them around. There was no mortar in between these big foundation stones that are 20 feet high, you know, 30 feet long. There's no mortar in between them. They're perfectly hewn till they fit perfectly. You can't even put a piece of paper between them. That's how perfectly cut they are. How did they do that? And, and how could this all be moved? And how can, it, how can all these, these stones be thrown down and all those things? It would just be so unthinkable to them. And they're going to ask him about it in verse 3 and 4. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign And all these things will be fulfilled? So he's on the Mount of Olives there. We're told that in verse 3. It's a mountain across from the Temple Mount. There's the Valley Kidron in between the Mount of Olives. So it's a mountain where they grew olives. That's why the, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, is on that uh, mountain. Gethsemane means olive press. 
So he's on that mountain. He's, they're looking over at, I'm no doubt looking over at the temple. You can't help but see it there. And they're asking for the timing of the event. But not just that, they're asking for the sign that will lead up to that event. So not only when will this happen, but we want to have a warning about when this is going to happen. What will be the sign? And now I don't blame them for wanting to know. I mean, this is something that's very important to them. See, God was in the process of transitioning their identity from that temple to being the temple of the Holy Spirit themselves, like we are. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful. God can't get any closer to us than he already is. We say, oh, God feels so far away from me. He's in you if you're a believer. He's inside of you. He can't get any more closer to us than that. It's beautiful. I don't blame them for that. But then Jesus uses the occasion to expound on what will happen 2,000 years later, all the way into our lifetimes, most likely. He knew that these disciples would be writing these things, inspired by his spirit. He knew that. And so he's going to expound on all the future of what's going to happen. They have no idea the distance between the time he said it and the time it will be fulfilled. They have no idea it's going to be at least 2,000 years. No idea. But he says it, and he knows that we need to hear it. He knows that all through the church age, believers would need to see it. And then, of course, the people in the Great Tribulation, are, I guarantee you, are going to be looking at this passage for instructions on what to do. And what, the first thing that Jesus says in verse 5 is, is that Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. And that's a great place to start when talking about prophecy. Very first thing he says, he could have started with anything. But he says the very first thing is, take heed, pay attention, take heed that no one deceives you. Very important that we look very carefully at what Scripture says and use Scripture alone to be the test for everything in life, but also, of course, for prophecy as well. It doesn't matter what our opinions are. I have nothing to say. You know me. You know my past. You know I have no wisdom in myself. The only thing that matters is God's Word and what God's Word says. So we want to look at what Jesus said because he's not going to deceive us. He always began or most of the time began what he taught with, most assuredly I say to you, or in the Greek it's amen, amen. And he would say the thing, you can trust what he says. We can trust what he says. So no one, see to it that no one deceives you. Now, of course, it's applicable to us today, but his first application was to the people that are going to be alive at the time well, of course, it's the people, of course, that are hearing this, the disciples, of course. But beyond that, into the future, the first application is to the people that are be in the tribulation. When they're reading these things, they're going to get instructions, and we're going to see that. So we need to understand. Now, the tribulation, there's a seven-year tribulation, as I mentioned, and Daniel talks about it. There's a seven-year tribulation that occurs. And in the middle of that seven-year tribulation, there's something that triggers what's called the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years of man's rule on this earth. Aren't you glad that we're not, man's not going to rule, sinful man's not going to rule this world forever? Man, I am so thankful for that. We can't rule ourselves. We can't because we're always inward in our focus and we're all, leaders are always corrupted by power, it seems like, and they put themselves first and we're just sick of it. People are tired of it. And I guarantee you when that Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to look so righteous. He's going to look so honest. He's going to look 
just like the leader we've been dreaming about. Supernaturally, he's going to appear as someone that's so trustworthy. He, you know, we think he's going to appear as this, like, evil-looking guy that's, <laughs> you know, like Igor or something, you know. And he, he's going to be like this, this wicked-looking guy. He's going to look like a model. Not that I can relate to that. Well, a model of some things that aren't good, but... Um, you know, but the, he's going to be like a real model, like a real male model, charismatic, so eloquent. It's so funny when people talk about certain leaders that we've had or what we currently have. Maybe they're the Antichrist and all that. They're so eloquent. We have no idea what eloquent is. He's going to rocket that definition far beyond what we could ever have thought eloquent to be. He's going to be so charismatic. He's going to draw people into himself. He's going to be able to do lying signs and wonders. He's going to eventually have a wound to the head and heal himself after three days trying to mimic the Lord Jesus. I mean, they're going to worship this guy, and he's going to demand uh, their worship. We have to know that that's coming, and this world is set up for a leader like that. This world wants so badly to have a leader that's amazing other than Christ, <laughs> uh, that they can just rely on and look to and be as an, as an example. And so we're going to avoid that as, as believers. Now, we're told in Romans, the Apostle Paul spoke of this something called the fullness of the Gentiles. What is that? The fullness of the Gentiles, there's a, there's a number of Gentiles that are going to be saved. And when that last Gentile receives Christ, the rapture happens, it's gone, there's, that's it. So the fullness of the Gentiles is going to happen. And when that happens, um, we're going to be caught up if we're alive uh, and remain at that point, whenever that is. I think we're getting very, very close to that myself. And it can't happen soon enough. Amen? So from that point on, after the rapture, when, because there's a, there's a distance. Stay with me here. There's distance between, we don't know how long, but there's distance between the rapture and the signing of the peace contract that, is, that the Antichrist signs with Israel. That's what starts the tribulation. The rapture doesn't start the tribulation. What starts the tribulation is that peace contract that he signs. There could be a year or more. Who knows how long in between those two. It's not going to be too long, but there's, there's going, definitely going to be a starting point of that seven-year tribulation. And when he starts that with the, with the peace contract, that likely will have something to do with the third temple being rebuilt. And everything's ready to go inside of it almost right now. And it'll include that. And the temple is not very big. The temple is almost, it's about the size of this room. It's probably not as wide as this room. It's really long. It's longer, the dimensions, but it's not as wide. It's not very big in terms of the temple itself, the holy place and the most holy place. The courts and all that, of course, take more space. And the Dome of the Rock Mosque on the top of that 17 acres dome, um, Temple Mount there, that is perfectly within what the, where the court of the Gentiles would be. They don't have to move that mosque. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It can fit. They're, by their old dimensions, it wouldn't. But they've made some discoveries related to the Eastern Gate that shows them where the court of the Gentiles really was. And, and it doesn't, they don't have to move anything. So somehow he's probably going to broker some kind of agreement with the, with the Palestinians saying, we're going to give you something. In exchange, you're going to allow the Jews to build their temple on the Temple Mount there. And you're going to be in their court of the Gentiles. And you're going to get along. And they're going to somehow be so impressed with this guy, they're going to say, we agree and we won't, we'll be fine with it. They'll, they'll be a part of this whole thing. And what, what's been happening in all these years, the last 30, 40 years, every, 
at least American president has been trying so hard to get peace with Israel. And they know that whoever does that, Trump even thinks he's going to do that. <laughs> uh, and whoever does that, everybody's going to be so impressed, so impressed. And that's what's going to happen with the, with the Antichrist when he does that. So the church is gone. It's, the rapture's happened. And then there's only tribulation saints. The church is gone in heaven. So the only people that are believers are those that get saved after the rapture. So they become believers, but they're not the church. They're called tribulation saints. And then they get martyred. Many of them get martyred. And then there's only a fourth of the world's population that survives the seven-year tribulation. Three-fourths of the world's population will be gone because of the wrath of the Lamb and and God's wrath being poured out on this world and so there's going to be a very small percentage of people that make it to the end of the seven-year tribulation. So that kind of gives us an introduction. But he is focusing on the Jews. He talks about, pray that your flight may not be on the Sabbath. He talks about that they're, gonna, they're going to um, you know, beat you in the synagogues. He quotes the prophet Daniel. All this would be meaningless to Gentiles. These are Jews he's talking to. Both unbelieving Jews that are going to be reading this in the tribulation but also believing Jews that are tribulation saints that are going to read this. It's applicable to both. That's important for you to understand and for me to understand what God's trying to get at here. Verse 6. I know there's a lot of verses. We'll get there. Verse 6. Don't get codependent on me. I'll make it. Uh, Just kidding. Verse 6. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive Many. So many will come and say, I am the Christ. Now, again, these are things that, yes, we can see foreshadows of now, but these are things that they're going to see in the tribulation. Now, we can see foreshadow of the foreshadows right now because we've had false Christ. You have all these things going on, and they're, they're going to happen more and more frequently. That's what birth pains do. Not that I know personally and can relate, um, but they get closer together. They get more intense as we get closer. But he's specifically talking about the things that they are seeing in the, great, in, the, in the tribulation to let them know that the end of the tribulation is coming when Jesus physically comes back to earth with us behind him, as we see in many places in Scripture. So he says, many will come and say that I am he. Verse 7, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. So God doesn't want us to be troubled. He's telling those in the tribulation, don't be troubled by what you see. There's going to be a lot of war in the, in the great tribulation. There's going to be a lot of war. At the end, they're all attacking, a lot of them are attacking the Antichrist in Israel. And right when they're about to get involved in this horrible war, then Jesus comes, starts coming back, and they see him. And Psalm 2 records that they'll all say, oh, let's go fight him. Let's join forces and fight him. And God's just going to laugh at that. I was like, give me a break. And and so uh, he doesn't want us to be troubled. Don't be troubled by war. We're going to probably see World War III before we die. You know, that's not even part of these things. I don't know. There's a lot of, we know that the battle, when I was gone and Pastor Garth taught, he taught about Ezekiel 37 and 38 and how Russia and Iran and um, uh, all these, Turkey, there you go. See, I wasn't there, so I I didn't get all that. But um, all these countries are going to unite against Israel. That battle's coming. They're all aligned right now. Their relationships are very strong, and they're going to get even stronger. 
So that's going to happen. We don't know if that's going to happen before the rapture or after the rapture and the tribulation. We don't know. That's coming for sure. That's not even a part of all these things, most likely. But it could be. So that's happening. We can't be troubled. He doesn't want us to be troubled because he knows how to protect us. He knows how to have us die in a way that glorifies him. And, you know, our lives are not our own anyway. We've been bought with a price. So we need to be ready to go be with him at any time, even apart from these things. Verse 8. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. So he's dealing with the the Jewish believers here. For my sake, Jesus' sake. For a testimony to them. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. He wants everybody reached. He wants everybody to hear that gospel. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So God will give us the words when we are persecuted and he'll give these people in the tribulation his words to say we shouldn't plan that out. And we're good at that, aren't we? We're good at planning out, okay, if this situation, I'll say this and this and this and this. We've got it all planned out. We've got cliff notes for ourselves. Uh, you know, we have all this stuff. And he's, don't worry about it. God will give you the words to say. And, and as we grow in that, we, it, we get more confidence related to him being faithful to what he says he'll do. Verse 12. Now brother will betray brother to death, and the father and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents. Is that new? That's been going on, but no. Uh, and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. There's a reason why people use Jesus' name as a cuss word. There's a reason why they hate believers. There's a reason why we're treated differently in so many ways than anyone else. And there's always a double standard. That's not going to change. That's going to get worse and worse and worse. But he says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's not talking about spiritual salvation. He who endures to the end of the tribulation will be physically delivered. It will be a very small amount of people that make it, but people will make it. So he says to them, in that tribulation, you endure to the end and you'll be delivered. You'll make it into the millennium. You'll see Christ come back and, and then <laughs> a thousand years of Christ reigning. I mean, how can it get any better than that? Verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. I want to pause for a moment. Stay with me. What is the abomination that causes desolation? It's not our kids' rooms. You know, sometimes you think, wow, that is an abomination, That what's going on in there. And it's, it's desolate for sure. It needs help. No, I'm just kidding. But The abomination that causes desolation, Daniel spoke of an abominable act which causes God's wrath. And I want to read to you a portion from from Daniel chapter 9. And it says in verse 25 through 27, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant. This is talking about the Antichrist with, with the Jews. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so this, these weeks that Daniel refers to are weeks of years. They're sets of seven years. And Daniel predicted, because of what the angel told him, that there would be 70 sevens or 70 sets of sevens of years that happen total by the, by the time that man's rule is over with. And so there were 483 years that occurred after the decree was given to rebuild the temple and the wall. And that led exactly to, it's in April, I forget the date, uh, AD 32, when Jesus came and made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem to the day. He talked about when he wept over the city, if you had only known the hour of your visitation, it was exact fulfillment of what he said. But in that same passage, Daniel speaks of this lawless one, this beast, this antichrist that makes this covenant for a week, which means seven years. Because it's weeks of years. But then he breaks it in the middle and he stops sacrifices. The antichrist is going to go into the, the upcoming third temple. And he's after three, year, three and a half years, He's going to break that covenant with them, and he's going to say, stop all sacrifices. And Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians, where he talks about that the, the, he will come and he will set himself up to be God in the temple of God, claiming to be God. And they're going to recognize that this guy is a fake and a phony, and they're going to take off and they're going to flee. And Jesus tells them, don't just flee anywhere. <laughs> flee to the mountains. Don't waste any time. The, the amount of wrath that's coming from him and his military, you don't even have time to come in and get a change of clothes. You don't have a time to do anything that you think of that can think that would be ne necessary. Just take off. Just take off and flee because he's coming after you. So that's going to happen. So let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he says in verse 15, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Because you'll have to go fast, really fast. And it's obviously very difficult for women to move fast with nursing babies. Verse 18, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. So you're, you don't want to travel during the winter. It's harder to travel. For in those days there will be tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created. So God believes in creationism. <laughs> uh, there, we can see that. Am I going to believe the scientists today that have all this crazy pseudoscience? Or am I going to believe what Jesus said? Jesus said he was created. I'll take Jesus. Thank you. And it, and it says, so that... that Tribulation hasn't happened anything close to up to this time, and, it, and no, no tribulation will be worse than that time. Verse 20, and unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. So he's, again, saved is not spiritual saving. It's physical deliverance. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. Jehovah's Witnesses believe today that he's invisible in Brooklyn. 
at their headquarters. The, the G, he came back in 1914 invisibly and ruling and reigning from there. That's what, that's, that's what they believe. But there's all kinds of false Christ. He says he's not going to, it's not going to happen. He's not going to be in places where you could go see him. When he comes, and this is what the, the angel said in Acts chapter 1 when they were staring up after he ascended. Why do you, why do you stand staring up in the sky? This same Jesus is going to come back the same way that he left. He's going to come where everybody can see him physically. We're going to see it. The rapture, we go to him and meet the Lord in, in the air. The second coming, he comes down to this earth and touches down on the Mount of Olives. And it's beautiful. So he says, false Christ, false prophets will rise and show signs, and look at this, and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. One of the things I learned after getting involved in a bunch of false teaching about signs and wonders is that just because it's real doesn't mean it's right. And that always has helped me. The magicians in, back with Pharaoh and, and Moses, they could duplicate to a point all of his miracles. Satan can do miracles, pseudo-miracles. I'm not saying the miracles that God can do. And, and we're going to see the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all these things, and they do all that stuff too. So we can't, we can't look and say, wow, I saw it with my eyes. It must be legitimate. And whoever is giving that message, their message must be true because of all these signs and wonders. No, it has to be tested by God's word. The Holy Spirit does a miracle. He's not going to do a miracle that contradicts his revealed word because he inspired God's revealed word. He's not going to contradict himself. It's very important for us to see that. Then he says in verse 23, But take heed. See, I've told you things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels. He can't be an angel if he has angels. That's another teaching for the cultists. He will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. So let's talk about the first application. Those in the tribulation, when they see these things begin to happen, they know that the second coming is near. They know that it's getting ready to happen. But we're seeing the foreshadows of the foreshadows. So we're, if, if that's true, if we're seeing things that are lining up for the tribulation, how much closer are we to the rapture? It's, it's getting close, very close. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, obviously, he's not speaking of the generation that is listening to his words. He's talking, and he's not talking about the generation that saw uh, Israel become a nation. Yes, the fig tree is referred, I mean, Israel is referred to as the fig tree in the scriptures. But in other gospels, it says the fig tree and the other trees. So he's not just zeroing in on one type, you know, related to Israel. He's talking about just look at how fig trees, how you can see that there's things that are going on in it that let you know that a certain time period is coming. And he says the same way with these prophecies. When you start seeing these things happen in the Great Tribulation, you know that it's coming. It's getting close. 
Then he says a verse that I love in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And they haven't, have they? These words are still with us. Still with us. His truth is still there, still keeping us exactly on point. The right, we're not rudderless. We're going the right direction. We're being fashioned. We're, being, we're growing as Christians. We know what's going to happen. Isn't it great to know what the future is? People have no clue what's going to happen. They're totally going blind in this life related to the future, and we're not. We know what's going to happen. We know that God is in control. We know that all of this is leading somewhere. We've read the end of the book, and he wins. We're not, we're not at the mercy of government. We're not at the mercy of the world economy. We're not at mercy of what nations do or don't do. He's sovereign. He's our Lord. He's sovereign over all of this. And it's leading exactly where he wants it to go. And he wants us to be comforted in that, to know that he is our great father who oversees all of it. And then he says, verse 32, But of that day and hour no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So no one knows the day. How many times have people given, written a book, 88 Reasons Why He's Coming in 1988? Some of you remember, may remember that. Harold Camping. Oh, my goodness. How many times did he say the end's going to happen? I mean, if you put a date, you can almost be positive it's not going to happen on that date, for sure. I mean, because it's just not going to happen. He doesn't, it doesn't work that way. There's a time. But Jesus said, though... We should know the times and seasons. There is a times and seasons aspect to prophecy where we can know certain things are forming. That's why he's saying all these things. If we can't know that the seasons and the times, why would he say these things? But that, but that doesn't mean we're going to know the exact day and the hour because he wants us, the, the rapture has always been communicated as imminent. It ha- can happen at any time. There's only one thing that has to happen before the rapture of the church, and that's the fullness of the Gentiles, like Paul talked about, that comes in. But we can't know what, we don't know what that number is. And there's no way we can know. We can't track that. So yes, that has to happen, but it's invisible to our eyes. So we have to be ready at any moment. And that's what he gets to in verse 33. And this is where a lot of the application for today comes in. He says, Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when, when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority, notice that word authority, to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. We have authority that he's delegated to us as believers. We have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, we're told in Scripture. I was just speaking with my daughter and her friend yesterday about a, a exorcism that I was a part of. Um, yeah, it wasn't me just, you know, struggling one day and someone had to cast demons at me. I'm not talking about anything close to that. But this is, that was a joke. Um, this was the early 90s and I was just at a prayer meeting and this lady flopped on the ground and started manifesting all the symptoms of demon possession and all of that. And man, that just the next three and a half hours were a rough ride for sure. But God delivered her from most of the demons. I mean, she prayed to receive Christ afterwards, and then the next day she's saying we're manipulating her and all these things, and, and so maybe we didn't get them all. We tried. Um, but then she went to work at a Christian bookstore, so okay. Uh, God bless you there. I won't be shopping there, but um, why don't you stay in the, the, you know, the satanic section or something over there and help people with those books, but um, 
You know, it's, it's, it, we have power. We have authority over the demonic realm. We're not told to go around and focus on Satan all the time and demons all the time. We're not told that. But we are aware of their devices. Paul said that. We're not ignorant of their devices. So we are supposed to recognize that. We're, we're not told to rebuke Satan. We're told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. And 98% probably of what we would consider spiritual warfare is usually just our flesh being tempted and our unbelief and our mind being contrary to what God's word says. And I, I'm talking about me too. But there is spiritual warfare. There is a battle. There, is, there, there are attacks from the enemy for sure. But he's given us that authority. But this authority is mostly referring to our authority in terms of the work that he's given us to do, our ministries and all these things. He's entrusted to us ministries. And it's beautiful. And we are servants. But he says, verse 35, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. We don't know. Now, if it were supposed to happen in the middle of the tribulation, I could know that. Because I could count three and a half years from the signing of that peace contract, and I would know. If it was supposed to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, I could count seven years from the signing of that peace contract, and I would know when he is coming. So that's why, and of course many other reasons why I believe it happens before the signing of that peace contract because it couldn't be imminent and it could happen at any moment as we see in the scriptures all the way through the Bible. But then he says, verse 36, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So he says, find you sleeping. Now is he thinking that he's going to literally find us is he going to be upset if we're in bed sleeping when the rapture happens? Because that's going to happen for someone in this world. Someone in the world, when he comes, is going to be sleeping. So he's obviously not talking about that. He's talking about another type of being asleep. He's talking about a spiritual sleep that, that makes us unaware of what's going on around us and makes us to where we're not being fruitful because we're distracted with the physical and the temporal and we don't have our eye on the ball, so to speak. And we're not thinking about spiritual things. We're spiritually dull. We are dull because we've allowed the cares of this world, that maybe the deceitfulness of riches or any sin, willful disobedience, whatever it is, we've allowed that to take over and now we're completely asleep spiritually. We're not paying attention to what's going on. We're not being fruitful. And he warns us. Did you notice that he said three times to watch? If God says something one time, it's important. He says something three times in a few verses, it's important. Watch. Pay attention. He said that to the disciples, the, inner, the three in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray. It's exactly what he's telling us right now. Watch and pray. Notice that in verse 33. Take heed, watch and pray. Why does he want us to pray? Because that's the way that we can be spiritually tuned in. That's how we ensure that we're not spiritually asleep because we are praying and we are engaging him. We are getting life from him. He is imparting supernatural power to us. We are fixated on the eternal, focused on the eternal things that he's focused on, not all the things that we can be consumed by. We are to watch. We are to pay attention. Just like these servants, we have work to do. We're called to be busy about his business. We're called to be fruitful. He can come back at any moment, and we want him to be 
whatever we're engaged in, we want them to be pleased with that at that moment. The first time your parents leave and they trust you at the house, you're old enough to kind of watch yourself for a little bit, you don't want them to come back and find you doing something crazy in your house. When your parents come home, you want them to be happy with what you're doing, you know? And, and that's kind of how it is with, with the Lord. It's, we want to be right in the middle of what we're supposed to be in the middle of when he comes back. He doesn't want us spiritually sleeping. There's two scriptures I want to read before we close here. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14 says this. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. He's saying this to believers. To awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. He's not talking about regeneration when we receive Christ. He's talking about being with him in heaven. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry. Revelry means partying. Not in partying and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What is provision? It's food. Feed, don't feed our flesh. That's what we're supposed to guard against. Don't feed our flesh. Give no opportunity for the flesh or, spirit or uh, nourishment for the flesh, which is sin. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 through 16 tell us this. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See that you walk circumspectly. What does that mean to walk circumspectly? It means to live in a way to where you're careful, you're paying attention, you're not just doing whatever comes to your mind, you're not just doing whatever you feel like doing, but you're taking his word and you're saying, God, you own my life. My life has been bought You own me now. What do you want for my life? What does your word say? And I want to do the things that only you want me to do. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time means to make the most out of our time. And we waste so much time with things that are worthless, myself included. And we're never going to arrive. We're never going to be perfect at it. But he wants us to continuously grow in not wasting time and be about the things that he wants us to be, wants us to, to be engaged in. And, and that's the light. That's the abundant life. See, freedom isn't being able to do everything that we want. Freedom is being able to do the things that he wants us to do and have the power to do it, to live a supernatural life of holiness, to live a supernatural life of fruitfulness, of ministry, all the things that we're sowing into eternity that we're going to get rewarded for instead of the things that are passing away in this life. We don't know when Jesus will return and snatch us away. But one thing we do know is when he does come, he's going to evaluate each one of us. And each one of us is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema Seat. And he's going to assess our lives. Heaven and hell settled. That's not the issue. But it's, it's about a stewardship. It's about what did we do with our lives? What did we do with the opportunities he put before us? What was our motivations for why we did what we did? The Apostle Paul said, without love, we have nothing. I could actually give my body to be burned as a martyr 
and have it count for nothing if it's not done as an expression of love to him and for others. That's pretty powerful to think that giving my body to be burned can count as nothing before him. So it's, it's a good exhorting thing for us. This world is winding down. It's careening out of control. He doesn't want us to fret, worry, to, to be concerned about where it's going because it's all under his control. And in the meantime, instead of being distracted by all of that, he wants us to build each other up. He wants us to be busy about his business, being fruitful, reaching out, being outward, being about eternal things. And that's what he wants to find when he comes. When he snatches away in like one one hundredth of a nanosecond of whatever it is, when he snatches us out of here and we get our new bodies instantly, he wants to see fruit going on. He wants to see ministry happening. He wants us to be about others and so forth. May he work in our lives so that we will be conduits of his grace in this world for his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this chapter. Thank you, Lord, that we're on the right side of truth, those of us that know you in this room. We pray that you would help us to live for you and not hold anything back, to live lives that are separated unto you, that people would look at our lives and they would see the character of you and the fruit of the Spirit coming out of our lives. Help us to grow spiritually. Help us to feed upon your word. Help us to bear fruit, Lord. Help us to love one another. Thank you, Lord, that you sacrificed so much to make that happen. We remember it and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.